Yes, so today is Friday evening, the 9th, and that uh, uh, Scott has some questions about the Angutara and the Kaya, and the Angutara actually means the word angle, and it has also close to the word finger. And so what it actually is talking about is numbering or counting with the fingers, and that's where the word ang uh, Angutara comes from, is the numbered discourses starting with the ones. There's some really, really good stuff in there. Um, uh, another point about the Angutar Nikaya is, is that it is historically known that most of the Angutar Nikaya has actually been lost. And that instead of the uh, three or 4,000 that we have, it was probably closer to about 12,000 suttas that were just lost. The next point about the Angutara Nikaya is, is that it was written kind of late, that it, you could see that the Buddha never taught in that numbered sequence, that someone compiled that book and they compiled it from older literature and they also added some suttas in there to take care of new questions and new mistakes that were being made that in fact, some of the Angutara Nikaya is more about the Vinaya than it is about the, the suttas. But one of the places that they're clearing stuff up is uh, scattered throughout the Angutara Nikaya is the issue about Samatha versus Vipassana. And that was never an issue in the time of the Buddha. That was a new issue. And so there were suttas written to take care of the issue. And basically, the way that the Angutara Nikaya took care of that issue was by explaining that it's not an issue. <laughs> that there is no distinction. So anyway, I'm going to hand it over to Scott. Scott, what have you got? Well, I just have a have a short little excerpt um, that was particularly uh, striking to me. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the Bodhi translation. So I figured I'd just I'd just read it. And then we could hear the the Damarado translation. All right. Um, so, okay. Fettered by the bond of sensuality and the bond of existence, fettered by the bond of views, preceded by ignorance, beings go on in samsara, led on in birth and death. But having entirely understood sense pleasures and the bond of existence, having uprooted the bond of views and dissolved ignorance, the sages have severed all bonds. They have mm -hmm. gone beyond bondage. Okay. This is what the word moksha is about, is the freedom from those several bonds. The other thing that's kind of interesting is, is that they were listed and that there are only a few of them. Can you uh, read that part again about the bondage of existence and what were the right. others? They only mentioned, so they mentioned the bond of sensuality, existence, views, uh, and then it says preceded by ignorance. Um, so, yeah, the main ones they have here in this little excerpt is existence, uh, views, and sensuality. Okay. Now, Bhikkhu um, Bodhi is using a very poetic language. I really like hearing what he has to say. 
but it's almost Shakespearean in the sense that it's hard, it's beautifully sounding. It's just hard to understand. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really dramatic. I like it's, it, but yeah, he's he's quite dramatic. Yeah. Okay. So the first word of that is the word fettered, right? The first word right. of that sutta. The word fettered here is a word that, let us say, in modern Buddhism, especially Western Buddhism, um, has become uh, in great detail defined. That people have done the research and pulled this stuff out of the uh, Samyutta Nikaya and pulled that other stuff out of the uh, uh, Abhidhamma and they put it together and shaken it up and coming up with a cocktail that they think that they have precise definitions of words, like example, the precise definition of Arahat has a particular precise list of fetters that he has removed. But in this sutta, he is much more talking about the very basics. Okay, we are in fact fettered by our greed for material objects. Now, this is something that uh, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa made a point of over and over again, that uh, the way that it's translated as sensual desires or sensuality misses the point because English language has a particularly different definition of that kind of stuff. That in fact, what we mean in the poly there by sensual are the things that you can hold in your hand, things that you can touch, like a pillow or an AK-47 or any of that kind of stuff. And we like holding that stuff, those sensual objects. And so um, we also, with the senses, we delight in the uh, the looking. That in fact, we don't have to hold the AK-47 all the time in our arms all evening long sleeping with it, but we will mount it on the wall so that it can be seen. And every time that we he see it, we get a little hit of sensual pleasure out of that just like I was explaining that I was getting sensual pleasure out of watching those little TikToks go up and up and up, hitting a milestone. Okay, that's exactly what this sensual desire is all about. Now, the, uh, the word fetter here actually has the word um, associated with a rope or a vine. And that it has to do then that we are fettered by that, that in fact, the way of thinking about it is, is that that AK-47 or that server owns the guy. He thinks he owns the AK-47, but the AK-47 is uh, his owner and that he is tied or bound to that AK-47 through his ignorance that if he recognizes it, he's not really bound to it, but he is bound to it emotionally because of the sensuality and the sensual desire. And so this is where that bondage comes from. And Bhikkhu Buddhadasa makes sure that we understand that this is talking about materialism, but there are some kind, sometimes concepts that substitute for the materialism. For instance, we can substitute and use words 
when in fact we would prefer if we had an opportunity to use actual weapons. But we can't hurt the guys long distance. So what we can do is we can hurt him with words and that we could get great uh, joy out of being able to hurt others through this sensual desire that we have. And it's a bondage. It's a fetter, okay? And it is nice to be free from that. Because if you have contact with an enemy, you're going to be watching him very closely to see, you know, sizing things up on a regular basis. And because of looking at it from that perspective, you're probably going to miss a whole lot of stuff. Maybe even miss his friendliness. And so uh, that's in a way of, of bondage is, is that we are ignorant. We start off in ignorant. We, don't, we start off basically with our eyes closed. Or if I could put a joke in there, we start off with our eyes closed and our mouth open. Wanting to suck on something, wanting to scream in pain, et cetera, like that. So this is how we start off. We start off in deep ignorance. As that, that sutta is, is pointing out, it's good to keep pointing that out, is, is that that's where we all start. We all start in our own stupidity. The question is, how long are we going to stay in that or are we going to wake up to these bondages that we have so that we can free ourselves from them? That the people who are stuck in materialism, they delight in that materialism. Let's give an example of a motorbike. And the guy really loves his motorbike, but he also has to put a lot of time in it to maintain it. But in fact, the more he loves it, the more he'll abuse it and the more maintenance it needs. So race car drivers, they love them some motorbikes, but those motorbikes require constant maintenance. And that's the way that we have to recognize it, that we, in fact, because we own it and we love it, we have to care for it. And that's the bondage. Now, no matter what happens, that motorbike is going to either get wrecked or broken up or the engine's going to go bad or it needs a complete overhaul. It's temporary. Everything is temporary. And when we lose something that we are already attached to, then there is going to be a great suffering. It's almost like that it, because we're bound to it, if it gets buried, that rope pulls us right into the grave with it. So when the motorbike dies, a part of me dies is the way that we feel. Without recognizing it, hey man, you're probably better off without that motorbike. You could hurt yourself. Aren't you glad that it's busted up now? <laughs> but we don't see things with wisdom. We see things with that attachment. And that attachment to sensuality is a very, very important one for us to recognize uh, so that we can be free from it. When something breaks, let it go, set it down. You might want to play with it as a toy later rather than uh, feeling like a, in a panic or need to do something about it. So we, we take that also into relationships and that we think the relationship is broken when in fact, no, nothing wrong with it. It's okay. So this is how we attach ignorantly to sensuality in the sense that we both sides of it. One is that we want it to be good forever and it's not. 
And the other is, is that it's actually okay, and we think that it's broken. So with those two things, that's uh, uh, the dangers of sensuality. Hello, Michael. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Hi, How's it going? Welcome. Thank you. So we're going over a sutta. By the way, what is the name and the number of this sutra? It'd be good to hear the number now that we're talking about which little bondages that we're mentioning. Um, well, it's kind of like, so it's like, uh, there's the normal, the normal text. And then this is just like a, like a indented little paragraph, like, it, I don't know. Well, no, it, I can't see it that way. But anyway, it comes out a, of the Nanbhutar and the Kaya so, Skadan. So, it's in the book what? The Book of Fours and Four, it's uh, okay. Sutta 11. All right. So the what the first thing when you're doing the Nanbhutar and the Kaya is you want to look for the four. If this is in the fours, this is the four. This is the big deal. This is what this Sutta is all about. It's placed there for that reason. So. We've already covered one of them, I think. What are the other three? What are the four that they're looking for in that sutta? The four. Uh, it's the first word. The, remember, is oh, yeah, These are the so these are the four severances of bonds, and then it says fettered by the bond of sensuality. Um, we talked about that one. The next one is the bond of existence, mm -hmm. and then the uh, the bond of views. <laughs> But then it doesn't mention that's only three. And then it says uh, preceded by after uh, after views, it says preceded by ignorance. So maybe that's the fourth one. Well, in some stations of the uh, uh, higher fetters, ignorance is one of the uh, the bondages. And as we said, we all start off in ignorance. That right. we're ignorant to this stuff. Yeah, so, so it, it, it lists it lists those three bonds, and then I think it's just uh, saying all of these three are uh, preceded by ignorance, which is kind of like another it's another bond. But the the I think it's ju just phrasing it like that so that it um, makes clear that the other three bonds are dependent all on ignorance, right? Okay. All right. <laughs> We'll right? read down a little further. They may, in fact, put the fourth one at, uh, later in the sutta. I think of ignorance as a habitat for all the other fetters to, that are mm -hmm. they're all born out of ignorance. Well, there's um, fair evidence from the suttas that that's true. We could cover that in five minutes or so, <laughs> but I'm looking for something else. Well, I so I, I it's a really long PDF, and I just took a screenshot of this one part of it. So <laughs> okay, all right. What comes that I could read like the what comes directly after it says uh they have gone beyond bondage. Then it goes it starts with another uh Roman numeral two and it says walking, walking. Bikus, if a sensual thought, uh, a thought of ill will or a thought of harming arises in a biku while walking. And he tolerates it, does not abandon it, dispel it, terminate it, and obliterate it. Then that bhikkhu is said to be devoid of ardor and moral dread. He is constantly and continuously lazy and lacking in energy while walking. 
Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. And so the so the the four in that's another sutta, and the four in that one would be the walking, the standing, the sitting, and the lying down, which I think would con continue. So you've already read the entire sutta because this is a new sutta. Yeah, that's the end of the the sutta. Is with that little excerpt, um, is the end of it. Okay. And if I if I go up to the top, all I see is uh. The bond of sensuality uh, views. Yeah, no, that, yeah, such are the Be, seven okay. of the bond of sensuality, so, existence, views, and then ignorance. Okay, all right. The one that seems to be have left out there is uh, the bond of uh, non existence. Ah. Uh. That's why I wanted to go back through there to figure out what the four were, because I didn't hear you talk about the uh, the non-existence that that was missing. All right. So they're talking about then the bond of sensuality, which can be then uh, basically the first five of the fetters. The first fetter being personality view. Can you change or not? The, uh, the second fetter is Silabata Paramasa. Hey, man, who defines you and what you are and your personality is set up by a set of rules that you've made and you can change by changing your own definitions and your own rules. Then the third fetter is the fetter of doubt about what is and is not the path. And we begin to figure out that this Eightfold Noble Path, it works kind of better than anything else does. And so that puts us on the path. And now we have these three knowledges that I can change and that I can stop listening to my own <laughs> bullshit <laughs> and start practicing correctly. And that leads us then into the fourth and the fifth fetters, which is this sensuality that we're talking about. The bondage of sensuality can only be conquered when the bondage of ignorance has already been lifted at that level of ignorance. So this is knowledge and we can see this stuff actually where this sutta is coming from is out of sutta number two in the Majjhima Nikaya, the, the, um, the Saba Asava Sutta. But there he doesn't talk about the bondage of existence. That's uh, dealt with in other places. Now the bondage of existence and the bondage of non-existence I've referred to uh, often with the students to get them to get a kind of a concept is, is that sometimes we want in and sometimes we want out. Sometimes we want into that click and sometimes we want out. When I was a kid, I would really be joyful about going to a new town because I was really happy to get out of the one that I was leaving. And that happened four or five times in a row. So that was a good Dhamma lesson that it had to be stored up and recognized for later in the sense that um, we all get into this case of I want it. I want to be it. And then I am tired of this. This would be also what we would refer to as burnout. I've had about enough of this job as I can stand, whether it's a cop or a comedian or whatever it is. We really jump into things wanting them to exist. And then someplace along the line, we've said, I've had enough of this. 
All right. Guess what? That generally for most people now is quite possible due to the circumstances that the person doesn't have a chance or a choice to go through this. But most people do. This is why we can understand that uh, it said that people generally choose when they die. Now, there are actual um, accidents that happen, but those accidents almost always happen because of stupidity. For instance, the guy fell out of the airplane without a parachute. Okay, was that actually accidental or was it just stupidity? That he didn't have his parachute on or, or whatever like that. So um, when we when we recognize then that we all want to do things for a while and then we want to quit. That that's part of the cycle that nothing goes on and gets bigger and bigger and bigger and higher and higher and every and whatnot like that. At some point we want to let it go. And that's and the deepest case of that is letting it go when we die. That we know when we're going to go. Um, one of the stories that seems to be uh, perpetuating and true on a regular basis is something like the story of all the family comes in on Sunday to see granny in the hospital and they pray for her and everything's going to be well and all of that kind of stuff and uh, everybody leaves happily and then they're all in a state of tragedy recognizing or hearing that she died on Monday or maybe she even died Sunday night that her that party was her last for well now that she's seen all of her family there's no place left to go <laughs> and so she checks right out the question is does she know that she's got that choice does she know she's got the choice because nobody else in the room did they thought that she, you know, we prayed for the damn old lady. <laughs> we expect her to not croak on us. And so uh, they go off into a state of grief. If they had all been aware of what was going on, then they could have had a really beautiful good night. Goodbye, Granny. They could have had the funeral right there with her in the room. Which I have seen, by the way, at least once in my life. A good friend of mine over the years um, had, I don't really know what was wrong with her blood, but they stopped giving her transfusions because of insurance companies and stuff like this, and she was still going downhill. And so basically she agreed to her own death sentence. And then on Saturday, she had a party. What a party she had. And all the people who worked at the prison where she worked, all of the people at the hospital and all the friends and family, she had probably about 60 people there with guitars, pizzas, beer, all done in the Redwood Forest. Beautiful scene. Everybody was really happy. And she was the queen right. of the show. And she died on Tuesday. That was the kind of timing that is. And so this is the way. Think about that. How would you like to go out with a party? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. a good way yeah. to go out is yeah. with a party because we know in advance what's happening and we're willing to let go. And everybody's going to have to go through this. It's your choice if you can do it with wisdom to see in I, advance. I go saw ahead. a video of a... Uh, 
it was at this guy's uh, funeral and they were uh, lowering the casket into the um, grave. And the guy before he died had had pre-recorded uh, a little audio message uh-huh. to play when they're doing this. And pretty much what he did is just make a bunch of knocking noises and go, let me out. Let me out. <laughs> hey (laughs) so it was like everyone was laughing he he pretty much left everyone with smiles on their face um i wish i thought (laughs) that sounds so beautiful i like that kind of stuff people have a a, the positive attitude right up until the end okay because but it sees the whole point is is about ignorance the ignorance is there about whether you want to go or you want to stay. Do you want to stay in this? Do you want to keep it going? Do you want to uh, improve it? Or are you willing to let it go? And so these are very, very deep things that we have um, that becomes the the bondage. It's kind of interesting like this that um, uh, all 10 of the fetters that they're talking about in general can be seen in this one little sutta here with, without putting both parts in it. But if we recognize how much we cling to stuff in the sense of existence, we want that laptop to exist. We don't want it to die. We want that uh, puppy to live. We don't want it to die. We cling to existence until we've had enough of it. Okay. I really, really love the Republican Party, Robert, for a long time, but now I don't care about it at all. I've changed my mind. Okay. That's the two things right there is, is that Rupa Raga, by the way, the poly for this is Rupa Raga and a Rupa Raga. And that many people misunderstand that they think that the A Rupa Raga is different from A Rupa Raga. All right. So what we're really talking about here is the Rupa Raga is the clinging to physical existence. That's what the word uh, um, Rupa here means. The Rupa would talk about Buddha Rupas or the physical images or the statues or whatever like that. The actual existence of something, something that's real. Even a human being is existing. It is real. But a lot of the concepts that we have never were real. But anything that is real in this sense is going to become non-real. Anything that exists, anything that's born is going to die. And when it's born, it's born ignorantly into wanting to be born, wanting to exist. And when it's dying, it's in the state of wanting to be dead, wanting to get it over with. And that, too, is done in ignorance. But it's not going to be a bondage for you if you are wise to the stuff inside. Could I ask a somewhat related question sure you don't have to ask you just turn your microphone and blurt it right out um so um i would say you know how um uh kundanya and the uh dhamma chakapawatana sutta the way that that it's expressed as as the dhamma eye opening is that um he saw that all 
uh, all arising phenomena are already decreasing phenomena or all arising phenomena are already passing away if it's translated. Mm -hmm. Um, that 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 mirrors my experience um, in meditation pretty well, and um, you know it. Uh, there's there's the disenchantment with sort of um, these different bondages you're talking about that comes with that, um, where like that you know worldly things no longer kind of have their ability to intoxicate the mind or kind of put the mind in its spell anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, I'm wondering if you've ever experienced sort of getting stuck or kind of getting like plateauing in the disenchantment phase where every time the mind tries to kind of like recreate a world um, to be born into or every time the mind tries to um, to recreate an old narrative or even a new narrative to, to lust after something immediately the awareness of that of that that impermanent nature comes up and it's the mind's disenchanted but it doesn't it doesn't go into like an alternative blissful meditation state it's just, just sort of kind of remains in the disenchantment it feels a little bit like a plateau i'm wondering if you've ever experienced that um and if you have any advice for kind of uh, overcoming sort of that plateau it kind of seems like you're stuck between worlds in a way <laughs> between right. like the and the world in a way this is an important point. Actually, the answer to your question was yes, a whole lot a long time ago. Now, not so much. Mm-hmm. Which would be the exact uh, the uh, the answer that you would expect. And the not so much is because shit happens. <laughs> but every time that something happens, that's an opportunity for you to either stay ignorant about it or to wake up. And part of the waking up process is the waking up into shit. It happened. Shit happened. (laughs) And then you can recognize that, oh, I'm calling it shit because I don't like it. And now the waking up process is going on, you see. Mm -hmm. A lot of shit happened last week. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of shit happened last week, exactly. (laughs) Okay, that's the whole point is, is that when we can recognize that, well, it was no big deal anyway. Yeah, that it was a poopy, but gosh, there's so much poopy out there. One more poopy is not much, (laughs) nothing to it, really. And so uh, from from that perspective, that's how we can, in fact, let it go. But we have to move from that point of I want it to get better. I want it to increase rather than recognize Mm -hmm. that things are up and down and up and down all are in a cycle that in fact, two points have been made. One was that, oh, the the Sangha itself had had a battle and that the example was of of Freud and that Freud's um, uh, group of students um, had a, a spat with each other. And the answer to that was, that was not what happened here. What happened here instead was, is that there was an invasion that was planned and launched intentionally, but ignorantly. The guys who were launching the the attack, they didn't recognize what they were doing, but that's what happened, that this was not an internal battle. This was an external uh, attack. It was an invasion. And then the other uh, example was, is that, oh, uh, 
why are you unfriendly with a, a new teacher who comes in? I thought that you invited him to teach. And the answer to that again was no, he was not invited to, he invited himself in and um, he wanted to take over. That he was actually an invader, not a teacher. I'll have to remember that because <laughs> I'm not going to do that one. That's one that I, I think is not a good idea is to invade someone else's place and try to take over because you felt, Scott, like you were invaded. Yeah, it, it wasn't really like a, anything uh, constructive. Like it, it wasn't like, oh, we disagree, but here's some constructive dialogue that might come out of it. Like that's cool too sometimes if someone comes on and uh, disagrees and plays the devil's advocate and maybe that uh -huh. leads to like maybe that leads to some fruitful discussion but no he just came on trying to derail the whole thing okay so here's the point that when he first came on you were in the sensual pleasure of oh we can get something out of this oh this is life itself let's increase this thing let's get it going yeah and then later you changed your mind like, about it. Oh, I, I want out of here. <laughs> yeah, so that was R R Rupa Raga, a Rupa Raga right there. Right, yeah. there it was, okay. And it does not it, it does not have to only exist in the sense of life and death because there's lives and deaths of even conversations. Everything comes to a close. Everything ends. Um, I, I always thought, I always thought, sorry to go, you go off. ahead. Go, no, I always please. thought the a Rupa Raga. So the clinging to non-existence would be. Um, but it's not it, clinging it, it, to non-existence or it's uh, not clinging to existence. That's the difference in the definition. How you read the word that uh, it's not clinging to non-existence. It's not clinging to existence anymore. I want out of here. Right. Right. Okay. So in a or sense, you could say uh, you could say in a way, yeah, but it does have that quality of clinging to non-existence. Me, I want out of here, or I'm going to kill that guy. I want him to not exist. Okay. Which means that I don't want to feel the way that I feel around him. And if he wasn't around, I could get rid of this feeling. That's you what's really. You could also just say it's the. The difference between craving and aversion, right? Craving is I want it. Mm -hmm. Aversion is I, I don't want it. I don't want it. So, and we that, do that ignorantly at all levels. Or I want to get rid of it. Uh huh. Or wanting to get rid of it. I now, want out I of here. About I was thinking about it like that fetter in in terms of uh, more of like a in terms of a meditative attainment sense. So, in the sense that uh the the normal craving is for the five aggregates for the sensual pleasures um so craving for existence and then um to experience the emptiness of the five aggregates uh could be a very profound uh, nibbana experience and then when the five aggregates come back then you're craving for the aggregates to go away right or is that that's kind of like what i thought it was well but. actually um here's the point about the ignorance for that 
is, is that, yes, we naturally and normally want stuff to be ending. When mommy is fussing at the child, the child wants it to be over. Okay, we're all in that kind of a state. But we do it ignorantly, and because of that, basically we can say that we leave the wrong side of the stage. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Whoever did that, can you change it back? <laughs> uh, just for me. <laughs> yeah, somebody been playing with the keyboard. Let me see if I can straighten it out. If you go into the right top hand corner, you just uh, click on either grid view or yeah, yeah grid so view. Yeah. All right, there we go. We're back again. All right. Uh, I'm worried a skater is going to come and land on my head. Uh -huh. <laughs> so uh, that what just happened was an example of what we're talking about. <laughs> Just yeah, look at right. that, okay? This shit happens. My screen changed. <laughs> and I didn't like it. I wanted to continue back the way that it was, and so I reset it. The only point here that we're talking about now is, is that in this case, I knew what was happening. I was not ignorant to those feelings that I had. That's the real point is, is that we're not going to stop but we can see that this is the whole foundation of the teaching of the Buddha is, is that issue of ignorance has to be uh, dealt with. That's, the, that's really the only thing. The cause of dukkha is stupidity. That's the only cause. And yet in uh, Mahayana, they say, oh, it's grasping and clinging. Right? Have you heard that? They say it directly, oh, the cause of suffering is attachment. And that's not correct. I think it's, it says it in the numerical discourses, too. There's mm -hmm. a part where I was reading, it says craving is the... Um, yeah, so with craving as companion, a person wanders during this long time, going from one state to... Oh, hey, Laurent, good to have you. Going from one state to another, he does not overcome samsara. Having known this danger, that craving is the origin of suffering, That's free from it. craving, devoid of grasping, a bhikkhu should wander mindfully. All right. Here, that's exactly what we're saying, is, is that it's not the craving, it's the ignorance of the craving. Because once we can see the craving itself, oh, we okay. can cut that better. I mean, you just read it while you were reading it to us. Yeah, read yeah. that again, I've, exactly. It says, having known this danger. So that would be mm -hmm. the wisdom. It's wisdom, exactly. Okay. Having seen this danger. Or the eye of the Dhamma, like Michael was mentioning, right? The awakening of the eye of the Dhamma. Mm -hmm. I love that. Like, that's very like, that just sounds mm -hmm. really cool. <laughs> right. Well, we use that as a metaphor and we use those metaphors on a regular basis. Like um, we, we go around telling each other in the normal society, wake up, look mm -hmm. at what you're doing. I mean, this is just standard talk that we've borrowed from regular society. The other one, um, is, is that uh, look at what you're doing or watch. 
this is uh, uh, standard language. We need to get our kids to wake up. But when they do wake up, they wake up into the same kind of ignorance that their parents are in. But when an old master says to wake up, he's at a different level and you figure out what level he is. And so you can wake up at the level that he's speaking. But we still have that same quality. That's the that's the sum total of the Buddha's teaching in the sense of dukkha, dukkha, naroda. Is dukkha? Look up. Uh, look at the fact that you're creating that through your greed and your ill will. Then you can put a stop to it. But it's always about waking up, taking a look, and this this then becomes our moment by moment meditation practice is every moment we have an opportunity to see that our screen just turned to shit. <laughs> and, and what are we going to do about it, right? And that uh, one of the things to do about it is to feel bad. And the other is to make it a teaching point. So these are the things that we can do when we wake up to what's going on. And that... Uh, um, the question then becomes of, well, how quickly can you wake up? How deep into an argument do you have to get before you wake up to the fact that you're in this argument? When is the argument itself, the Rupa Raga, going to be overtaken now by our A Rupa Raga? Oh, this is Dukkha. I want out of here. So no, you right. could say, yes, go ahead. I was going to say um, the way I uh, one of the ways I like to think about the relationship between ignorance, craving, um, the birth of self and suffering is uh, is uh, kind of looking at it from an evolutionist perspective. And, and Ajahn Buddhadasa kind of talked about this as well. But I think about the fact that um, if you think about the word craving as as tanha, which is thirst, the Buddha is kind of pointing at the unconscious evolutionary drives that we're born with. Mm -hmm. And when we're when we're born, um, we're ignorant of what we need, so we need these drives to get us to to eat and to reproduce, to build our houses, to herd together. All of these drives are basically uncomfortable feelings that come up in the body, like hunger. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, but when we when we start to understand uh, with wisdom, like the law of conditionality. We no longer need to rely on these unconscious drives that have kind of spun out of control. So once ignorance is solved, then craving is no longer necessary. We can abandon craving and we can um, make make free choices based on wisdom rather than um, unconscious being unconsciously driven sort of out of control. So I, I kind of think of the Buddha's teaching as, as a way of helping human beings overcome um, just that stage of evolution where we have to rely on those unconscious drives for, for mm -hmm. basic needs and, and all that. Okay, let's look at the word drive that you're using and recognize that there are other words that are used pointing in that direction. Okay, knowing that from the Tao Te Ching, that the, the Dhamma that can be spoken is not the actual Dhamma, that mm -hmm. always language is pointing in a direction, but it's not the actual thing. All right. <clears throat> so with that, we can look at and use other words other than that drive. One of the words that we can use because it's actually gotten permitted. We begin to understand what the scientists mean when they talk about instinct. 
-hmm. And there are many instincts, but there are primary instincts that, in fact, the instinct to eat food and to drink water is directly related to the self-preservation instincts, survival. All right. But then there's the secondary instincts like um, um, the nesting instinct or the herding instinct that give rise to uh, us acting like a dumb animal in the sense of going along to get along, doing what we're told to do. We feel safety in numbers. And that then leads us into the, oh, well, the safest place in the herd is in the middle of the herd. Oh, no, the safest place in the herd is not in the middle of the herd because the middle of the herd has absolutely no control over where the herd is going. But they think they they do. (laughs) Okay, Scott, we'll see you later. Bye-bye. Good to see everyone. Have fun. So before you go, I'll ask, I'll give you one more word. And that is is that the word in the sutta is translated, and Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it this way as to the word underlying tendencies. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you use the word drive, the scientists use the word instinctive and instinctual, and the Buddha has the word underlying tendencies. Now, there was a time, oh, I think this is like 2004, 5, and 6, that period of time, I was absolutely, um, let us say, into the sensual desire of finding all the references that I could to underlying tendencies because I wanted to create a pattern, and I found that there was no pattern. It didn't exist because in some places, underlying tendencies have four items. Sometimes it has six. Sometimes there's a whole long list of things that the Buddha has for underlying tendencies. But we can come back to this word that you're using of these drives that are built right into our DNA. An example of that is is that uh, like a Bambi scene to where uh, the mother deer has the baby and as she's giving birth, she's shot dead by the hunter. Okay, can that infant survive? Can it finish its own birth, stand up, run away from the hunter, and then eventually find water to drink as a substitute for the milk? In other words, is the instinct strong enough for survival? For the deer, perhaps, maybe a zippy. For some species, absolutely dead sure. Yeah, alligators, they abandon their eggs. They even hatch on their own. Uh, All kinds of animals are like that. Uh, uh, Turtles, many different types of turtles, okay? But humans, unfortunately, because of the, uh, the long history, our instincts are not nearly good enough to make us ready for society. And in fact, you could say that even a dog, even a puppy, his instincts are not good enough for him to be in human society. Probably good enough for the wild, but not his instincts not sufficient. Uh-huh. And so this is where the issue of ignorance comes in, is because the old automatic programming, the drives, the underlying tendencies, the instincts are not sufficient. And so what we do to complement that is set up a whole lot of rules and we create these rules and we bound ourselves to these rules because they've kept us alive. 
But in the teaching of the Buddha or in this Dhamma that we're doing, what we can say is, okay, thank you very much, Mr. Instinct, and all the rules and bondages that you put yourself in your cage in order to protect yourself. From now on, we don't need you anymore. We're going to watch and and watch out for you. We're going to now use wisdom rather than bondage. Uh, Damarad, I got to pop off for a little bit. I might be able to come back on. I'm not quite sure, but I have to oh, okay. take care of something. Right. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Michael. Um, let's see where we are with this. Yeah, we're about 45 minutes in, so we could begin to wrap this up. Anyway, I wanted to make this one last point uh, that I just made in the sense of what the bondages are is basically all of the rules that we have uh, rather than using wisdom. And so what we want is that we would want instinctively as opposed to wanting wisely. But by paying attention, looking and recognizing that it is in fact ignorance and not knowing what we're doing moment by moment is where we wind up in grasping and clinging at things we don't have, which is in fact suffering. Uh, And so we can begin to act wisely so that we only want things wisely. Because the Buddha talks about that too. In fact, there's a whole group of suttas uh, in the 130s in the uh, Majjhima Nikaya where he's talking about one fortunate attachment. And that one fortunate attachment is to be in the present moment, which means that we're watching what's going on. We're in the present. And so that's actually a fortunate attachment. And there's many fortunate attachments. Friendship, nurturing, being in the here now, being in a state of relaxation. All of these things are uh, useful. And so we can, in fact, attach to them in the sense of uh, in the early part of the uh, conversation, we were talking about um, um, the, the lust for life, wanting to make things grow. Well, with wisdom, we can decide what are the right things that we want to grow and that we can let go of the things that are unwholesome and unwise. And so this is how we begin to live. We live knowing that we're actually attaching to things and we're doing it wisely. And when it's time to let it go, we can let it go wisely. Because if we are clinging to something that we can't get, that's going to be suffering. If we continue to hang on to something that's in the process of dying or is going to die, then that's going to be suffering. And so we can actually then decide for ourselves what we hold dear. That's, by the way, the part of the name of a sutta, and that is, the Buddha says, is a sutta number 86, I think, uh, grief comes from those who are dear. But he actually not just those, that's kind of a bad translation in the sense of it's only people. No, anything that you hold dear is going to bring you grief. But if you can let go of it and don't hold it dear, then it's not going to cause you grief. So when grandma dies, your grief is not going to bring her back to life. Why are you grieving? Why don't you celebrate her life instead? 
that's the way of looking at it is, is that most of the bad feelings that we have is because we have lost something that we thought we owned. And what we can do is become very, very goodbye, uh, good, uh, good at saying goodbye. That's probably a, 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 an interesting way of, um, of saying it, is all we have to do in the teachings of the Buddha is learn to happily say goodbye. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> Don't need it no more. And that's actually then the end of clinging to existence. That's the end of clinging to um, sensuality. And that's the end of, of the bondage. Not that you're going to stop altogether wanting things that are unwholesome, but you're going to wake up to it and recognize, oh, what I'm clinging to right now is unwholesome. Let me let it go. Let me turn it loose. So does anybody have any final questions about this? Anna, do you have anything to say? No, let it go. <laughs> David, how about you? By the uh, way, yes. where, where are you now? Uh, I'm in uh, Penang Island in Malaysia. Aha, okay, going for visas, huh? Yeah, I got my visa yesterday. And I'll be coming back to Thailand June 20. Looks like a lot of people are going to be here in Thailand in that particular time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll be in, I'll be in Chiang Mai and going to, the, oh. going to the ordination program on July 1st. Yeah. Oh, yes. I really do want to hear about that. Take good notes. Yeah, yeah. Because they that's don't want important... me to use my phone, though. I think the whole. Well, take a needle and and poke your finger and write it out in blood. I mean, this stuff's important. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, anyway, yes, it's really good. You see, there was a period of many, many years starting back in the 1980s when the Thai government, immigration, the Department of Religion, and all kinds of things got cold shoulder for Westerners coming in and ordain ordaining. It was like they didn't know how to do it. We still are having problems. There's a whole lot of little issues that the Thai people already know that the Westerners don't, and when the, the guy becomes a monk, he really sticks out in the sore thumb. There's actually several items. One is, is that a, once a Westerner becomes a monk, he stops talking to women. Why is that? That's a cultural issue. And it comes from a sutta where the Buddha recommends that, it, uh, that if you see a woman, don't look at her. If, if you have to look at her, don't talk to her. If you have to talk to her, don't look at her. Now, in fact, this is the way, or uh, don't touch her, et cetera, okay? This is actually what I was advised when I was uh, learning psychology, and uh, Michael Brown said it this way. He says, oh, 
just because there's a beautiful girl on the other side of the room doesn't mean you've got to go over there. And if you go over there, there's no reason why you have to talk to her. And if you talk to her, there's no reason why you should touch her. Every step along the way, you have a choice. Now, I know Anna would think about it in this in uh, uh, the, the mirror image of that in the sense of, uh, well, why is it that way? Well, actually, it's the culture that the Thai women are trained to stay away from the monks. And because of that, they the women themselves are offended if a monk ask her for something, even if it's a, um, uh, a visa related issue or something like that. And so the first thing that the Western monks have to learn is do, if you need something, go to the Sangha, you're in the Sangha. You do not go to lay people for your problems. You stay within the Sangha. And yet every Westerner that I know will go and ask advice and whatever to anybody as if they weren't in the robes at all. Um, another one which is really, really, really important. I've mentioned this before, but only once, and I'll take a point about it now about the ordination. And that is, is that the monks are sharp and they're awake and they're watching what's going on. And the Westerners do not realize they think that all the people around me are as just as awake as I am without recognizing that no, all of these monks are probably pretty sharp. They're watching what's going on and you should watch what's going on, too. And what possibly the biggest one of all is don't lie to a monk. Don't lie to them. They're sharp. They'll know it. It's part of the training. Don't lie to a monk. That's an important point. And in fact, in the general point, then, is that a new Western monk, he doesn't lie to anybody. Why? Because we're at the point now of willing to hear all of our own problems. So we don't lie about it. We tell the truth, even though it makes us look bad. Or that we think that we look bad. And in fact, you'll look good by telling the truth. And there's another one that goes along with that first one. And that is, is that when a monk is proceeding along in a particular place, let's say it's a public place, and that could be in the what, it could be in the uh, traveling, whatever, is that um, Westerners, we naturally just make our way. So if there is a crowd of people around, we just move right through. We might touch somebody, we might push somebody or whatever like that, but we've got a destination and we go there. Within the context of the Buddhist monk in Thailand especially, is, is that when the monk wants to proceed through, he stops and he stands and he looks at the ground in front of those people. He actually looks at the shoes that he wants to have moved. And those people then wearing those shoes will move out of his way so that he can proceed like he was the grand master. That in fact, that's the whole point about Thailand is, is that the monks begin to act nobly. They're not children trying to make their way through a crowd. The monk wants the crowd to move aside, to make room for his parade. And the Westerners, they don't know that. And so they offend the Thai people by pushing their way through. So these are kind of tiny little things. 
but they but they will put you in a position of you're not wanted at this what why don't you go take a hike someplace else we expect you to act tie not only to act tie but to act like a thai monk not a western monk who happens to be in thailand or in a thai wat but you have to really really i mean the biggest thing of all is you gotta open your eyes and look at the way the other thai monks operate and operate the way they do that's the important part so all of this time they have uh thailand has been uh cold to westerners because they don't know all of these tiny little rules and i just gave you three examples there's other examples about how to carry the bowl and all kinds of other stuff and the way that you learn is by getting a good thai monk to befriend you so that he can teach you all of this stuff that in fact the whole song is all about friendship anyway and now that you're in the sangha you want to get really close and really thick with the sangha make some good friends there well, the good news is, is that more recently, and I think that this has actually happened more after COVID, but all kinds of places in Thailand are beginning to warm back up to the to Westerners coming in and ordaining. And in fact, we've got several that are doing that. And here you are, David, again. And so I want to help you to really fit in, to really become a good monk, even if you do it temporarily, because that will give Westerners a good or give a good impression to the Thai people that Westerners can, in fact, learn to fit in and stop acting so Western and start acting the way that Thai. But this requires a lot of looking. A lot of waking up, a lot of being around the other monks to uh, study how they behave so that you can learn how to behave the way that they do. That in fact, here's where that first fetter of personality view really comes into play because you got to forget who you were when you walked into that temple and you got to become one of the people who were in that temple. Does that make sense? This, I mean, if there's anything that destroys personality view, it's ordination, if you do it right. And a lot of people come in and ordain, and they don't take that opportunity to make a huge, huge change in their life. And even if you ordain for three months, if you do it correctly, the, the joy uh, and the success that you have gotten from it will be there for you to tap into for the rest of your life a wellspring of wisdom. So I yeah. heartily recommend, David, that you go for it. Yeah, yeah. I'm very curious, what is it like? What is the livelihood of a monk life? I want to experience that. And perhaps I will stay longer. I don't know. You've got I'll my stay. support. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, does anybody else have anything to say? Robert, you got something? Yes. Um, yeah, I have a, a question. So you mentioned um, about how we're born into ignorance, essentially. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, as someone with a newborn baby, I, I'm just curious to hear more on the Buddhist take on the, the uh, perception of the baby, you know. Um, yeah. I would say keep giving the baby happy smiles. Give the baby toys. 
Um, also, it's, it's beginning to get a little late now, but especially when the t- baby is a temperate infant, it needs to be held all the time. That putting them in bassinets or putting them in another bed or something like that actually has grave um, um, psychological things for uh, in the issues of abandonment. Every time that you set the baby down, the baby is going to possibly cry because he doesn't want to be abandoned. So that would be the one thing to be watchful for. Anytime the baby cries, especially because of that kind of stuff, make a change. Get the baby back into a happy state. Sure. Okay. That well, would be the advice. My mother-in-law said pretty much the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Mother-in-laws so have got some wisdom. You don't want them wisdom. to cry. You don't want them to cry. Yep. We our whole lives cry too much. And so the best thing that you can give to a temporary infant is a life where he doesn't have to start off in tears. Right. Yeah, my my wife is really big on that. Like whenever he cries, she's like, don't let him cry. Don't let him cry. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, yeah, that's good. Pick him up, rock him, hold him, let the dog lick their face, whatever it is. But we don't want the child to be in a state of feeling like he's been abandoned. Right. Because you can see that if a child gets that in their very early days, they'll go around feeling abandoned anytime somebody walks out of the room. Right. And so we can put an end to that kind of stuff so that they don't have to spend three years in psychotherapy. We could do all the psychotherapy we need before they're three months old. Right. Giving your child a very, very happy life until he's three months old is almost a guarantee that he'll be happy for the rest of his life. Sure, that's great. Mm-hmm. We're seven weeks in, so. <laughs> that's, it's not too late because you've already got a couple oh. of South American women who know exactly what I'm talking about already. <laughs> yep, that's the truth. <laughs> I would say offhand that that's part of the reason why the United States is having so much trouble now is because so many babies were put into bassinets over so many years. Actually, I think you're totally right. Like one of my friends in the States, he he also has a newborn who's um, six months, eight months, you know, mm-hmm. um, and 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 he asked me, are you sleeping with the baby or putting them in the crib? I said, oh, we're sleeping with the baby. And he said, wow, you know, everyone recommends uh, to put them in the crib in the States. And I said, well, in Colombia, they all say to sleep with a baby. So we, we're <laughs> my joke on that. My joke on that is, is that too many of the American Christians have read uh, the book of Solomon too much. <laughs> Okay, you know, the book of Solomon has a story about some woman was sleeping with her baby and rolled over and killed it. I do not recommend that you are completely out of it and asleep, that when you're sleeping with a baby, that you have it positioned so that you're not going to roll over and kill it. (laughs) But that's the fear, I think, that people have is, oh, you're not supposed to let the baby sleep in the bed because you might roll over and kill it. And that's stupid. No woman is really, I mean, how, 
that was such a rare case, even in the time way back when, that that's a really unusual thing to have happen. It is happening. It is happening. Don't say it's not happening. It is happening. It does happen, huh? So if it happens and we know that it happens, we need to make sure that we're taking care that it doesn't happen tonight. Tonight, that's not going to happen. And if every woman goes to bed with the baby in the bed with her and she has that thought as she's going to sleep, this is not going to happen tonight. Then, in fact, it also has to do with uh, the training of the monk. That monks uh, go through the training of learning to sleep on their side. Don't sleep on the back. That in fact, most of the people who were killed during the early parts of COVID was because the doctors didn't follow this little rule of put your patients on their side. But if you sleep on your back, then you'll get restless overnight and you'll roll over or whatnot like that. But if you train yourself to sleep on the side, then you can sleep with other people. Then in fact, in the old days, back in the 1930s, during the... Um, um, uh, the depression times when people were so poor, you'd you'd have the movie of, of four or five people sleeping in the same bed. And when they rolled, they all slept on their side because that takes less room. And when they would turn from one side to the other, they would all do it at the same time. <laughs> Everybody would roll over at the same time. OK, so that's the kind of training that you can do. And, and I would recommend that uh, that you probably are not going to to roll over and sleep on the child, that there's enough awakefulness in the night that you would, in fact, if, if, if believe me, if you rolled over on a child and were holding it, that child's going to be disturbed and it's going to make some movement, it's going to make some noise, it's going to be in distress. Well, so, well it's and, funny because I actually had this exact conversation with Sandra and I said, you know, you know, I don't know, you know, about him sleeping on the bed. What if we roll over? And she said, that's not going to happen. Happen. That's just not. That's that's some other talking. That's yeah, exactly she, right. That's yeah, exactly she said, what she, she said. That's not, not going, to going to happen. I have my eye on him even when I'm sleeping. That's not uh -huh. going to happen. And I said, OK, yep, <laughs> I that's trust it. you. Well, thank yeah. you for redoubling what I was just saying, Robert. You even said it better than I did when because she said yeah. that's just not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So now that's the advice that you've already got good advice. Your family is giving you good advice. You're in a place where you're going to get some good advice about that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I notice in in Colombia, people in general, the families are a lot closer and you don't see as much abandonment issue type stuff here, you know, and I think this is mm -hmm. um, I think this is probably one of the reasons why. Mm -hmm. They have a character. For Go ahead. You need to open your mic or turn, talk louder, Michael. Put it close to your face or whatever. It's very, very low volume. Yeah, because I got a little water on it, so it might be good. I was not using it. I can't hear you. So, Laurent, do you have anything else to say? All right. Um, can you hear me now? Um, no, that was pretty, pretty good. Yeah. All right. 
Yeah, I'm always glad to see you. You come on, you make my day. So, Michael, did you uh, did you get your volume up? I took off the headset. Um, okay. Yeah, now I can hear you just fine. Um, yeah, I was going to say that uh, in Japan they use um, attachment parenting, and there's like a, a character in Japan um, that symbolizes how the parents sleep with the child. And I don't know, the character looks kind of like this with like a line in the middle and uh, both parents sleep on their side with their backs facing each other with the child in the middle. And I think they do that at least until the child is six or 10 or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the women bathe with the daughters and the, and the men bathe with the sons all the way into their teenage years. And it's like a very close and also they, they carry the children on their bodies, which mm -hmm. is, you know, um, the way that Japanese culture is kind of represented in the U.S., it's it's like contrary to what you would expect. But yeah, they have like a very strong attachment parenting style that they use there. That uh, yeah, like I said, makes the family structure very strong, very tight. That's another aspect about putting an infant into a crib, is is that that breaks that bondage, uh, that that bond, that nurturing bond, and the child feels that he's abandoned and on his own. And then when he's an adult, he can't count on his family. The families are kind of falling apart in the West. But here in Thailand, the families will take care of any any problem that a kid's got or any problem that anybody that's a member of the family is called. The word gets all out and then something nice happens. That there, uh, there's almost no homelessness. There is some, just a tiny bit, but in general, there is no homelessness in Thailand. Everybody's got Granny's house to go stay at. So, Robert, thanks for asking this question. This is a good ending for us, is to uh, recognize that nurturing. Let's make sure that we nurture each other as adults because most of us didn't get enough of it when we were kids. We were put to work far too early. And now it's time to be friends and relax with each other. So, Ashley, I'm glad to see you here and Alec also. So let's finish this off. Anybody got any last words to say? Thank you, guys, and thanks, Thank Scott, for bringing this sutta up. I didn't expect this much good stuff to come out of it. So thank you. Bye-bye. All right, have a good night. Take care, everyone. Yeah, everybody Cheers. have a good moment. Just smile on the way morning. of clicking out. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, everyone. Good night. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs>